Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. On Trailblazers today, we chat to one of Australia's most loved Olympians, two-time gold medalist and the only Australian to win a medal in an individual event at four Olympic Games. 11 times world champion on the track, our first Trailblazer is cycling legend Anna Mears. I got the eye of the Anna Mears, welcome and thank you for being our inaugural trailblazer. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, very well, thank you. New show, uh, a new start and very exciting, especially in these current times. But uh, we are here to talk about you. And you earned so many records, medals, accolades in a cycling career that spanned more than two decades. But this year, you added a new line to your CV. Eight months in, how is the title of mum sitting with you? Oh, it's sitting really well. Thank you very much. Um, Ev, she's a little gem. My daughter Evelyn was born in February, just before COVID hit. Um, but, uh, you know, I've just started to get used to the lack of sleep and the routine <laughs> of life with a, a, a newborn baby. Um, but no, it's definitely different. Um, she's made me slow down a lot, um, which has been lovely. Um, and at the same time, she's really challenged me. So, no, it's been really wonderful. Yeah, well, you're someone that's, uh, in, it's in your nature to time things down to the thousandths of a second and, and live life with so much structure. Uh, babies don't come with a textbook and normally they throw structure out the window. How have the last eight <laughs> months been? <laughs> yeah, that's a very, very good point. Um, I'm a fairly meticulous person, so I'm having to learn to live in a messier house. <laughs> <laughs> um, especially now that she's crawling and on the move and pulling everything off of shelves and clothes out of bags and all sorts of stuff. So, um, no, it's, it has had its challenges, especially with the COVID restrictions. There was a point there where, um, you know, with border closures, we had no access to family and with restrictions of um, socialising, we had no one visiting the home or us, we weren't going out. So in, in some ways it was lovely because my partner, Nick, who's the head coach of the Australian Sprint Cycling Team, he didn't have to travel, um, so he's been able to see every, every day um, and not miss anything. But at the same time, it literally has just been the two of us. So, um, yeah, bit of a double-edged sword, but um, we're definitely not complaining because I think we've got a good egg. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. And well, hopefully those borders will open and your family will be able to meet her soon. I know they'd all plan to come and visit you uh, long before now. Uh, how about the two of you? Have you put Evelyn on a bike yet? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she, she loves the bike. Uh, we've got a little bike seat for her that sits um, in the front of us. So 
Um, she, she's got full view of the world as it comes at her and she loves the wind in her hair. Um, and would you believe she actually got her very first bike this week? Uh, <laughs> so a friend of mine who was the um, you know, my oldest cycling friend um, met Evan Corey when I was 13, 11 years old and he made her a balanced bike painted in the same colours as my Athens Olympic bike with her name on it. It's really beautiful. So she's all set to go when she's ready to fit it. <laughs> oh, that is absolutely gorgeous. How old were you when you got on a bike? Ooh. Well, I reckon I would have been three or four. I was a little BMX bandit. Uh, <laughs> but my first bike was a, a – I remember very vividly, it was a white frame, white handlebars, training wheels, basket with flowers on the front, spoky dokes, and the big orange flag <laughs> out the back. So <laughs> bit different to the racing bikes I ended up on. Yeah, tearing it up on the streets of Middlemount. Uh, now, yeah. how do you find riding now? Are you able to just take a bike ride or is there an instinct to want to beat everyone out there on the path with you? No, no. Look, I am able to go for a bike ride now, but not in the context that you think. I, I very much am not interested in competition or exertion. Um, so I'm very much a social peddler. And, uh, yeah, I avoid, you know, those competitive people who half-wheel me out on the road at any any time. But um, <laughs> I actually went away from riding a bike when I retired. I just um, – it's a bit confusing because I couldn't understand why all of a sudden I just liked something that I knew I loved. Um, but it took me a little while to nut out the simple fact that I hadn't recreationally participated in sport. I hadn't had that just cause factor to go out for a pedal. Um, there's always been a, like a goal or a reason or a target um, attached to it. So I've had to learn how to be a recreational uh, participant in sports. So, yeah, I, I love it now. I can go out in my casual clothes rather than Lycra. I've got an e-bike with a bell. Like none of that would have been on my race bike. <laughs> so, no, it's good. Life's good. I'd like to see a bike with a bell out on the velodrome. <laughs> I think it would work a treat. <laughs> Well, as you say, you after you retired, you went away from the competitive side of sport and you've had an entire Olympic cycle now away from it. Uh, we're going to get your perspective on your career a little later, but now that you've had the chance to be just a fan, not a competitor, are you a good armchair athlete? No, terrible. Always have been terrible. <laughs> um, like, I love sport. I'm a, I'm a fan of sport. I'm not an expert, but I am a, a very much a big fan of sport. I love watching it, um, but... I would rather be participating. The the nerves and adrenaline that run through you and you have no uh, avenue to export that is just awful feeling. I hate it. Uh, and, and the lack of control sitting on a couch watching someone else do it is just horrendous. And uh, actually, my own sport, I can't watch my own sport um, flat out. Just no. Any other sport, yes, but track cycling, no. I really struggle <laughs> with that one. Really struggle. I can, <laughs> can imagine. Maybe you need to go into full spectator mode. Do you do you sit there with maybe a beer and hot chips, or can we picture you with chocolate? It used to be your biggest reward. Yeah, I'm a sucker for chocolate. Uh, <laughs> I'm a real sucker for chocolate. Uh, I must admit, I did go to the Commonwealth Games in 2018. Um, I had to because I was ambassador and my name was on the velodrome, and I took my sister Kerry with me for company, and we had a great time because we, for the first time, we were in that environment, a competitive competitive environment. First time in 20 years, and we just sat there and we had a few wines and we heckled the palms and we had the best time. Um, it was very different from anything we were used to being inside of Bellodrome. 
<laughs> I can imagine. And then, of course, this year, as we mentioned, uh, everything changed. And, of course, most people think that preparing to have a baby keeps you busy enough. But you decided to also release a wonderful autobiography earlier this year. Now, it's a gripping read, Anna. I can advise anyone who's keen to grab a copy of Anna's book entitled Now... Don't start reading it like I did in the evening. I literally couldn't put it down. I ended up finishing it in the wee small hours of the morning. It is a fabulous account of what life looked for you, uh, looked like for you, both on and off the track. What was the process like for you of reliving all of those experiences? Yeah, it um, it was an interesting one because I, I knew that there were many, many delicate moments uh, many people know my career, you know, every two or four years with the Commonwealth Games and the Olympic Games, but uh, there's a lot that happens in between those periods that many people don't know about. And, and I'm like everyone else, I'm human, um, and I have many, many challenges that uh, I have to face as well. So having to go back and delve into some of those moments was difficult um, because I feel the emotion that's attached to those moments. Um, so there are a couple of things that needed to to fall into place for this book to happen was firstly I had to feel ready, like I said, because those there were some very difficult moments. Um, but I had to have the right person to work with. Uh, in particular, I ended up asking Reese Homfrey, who's the sports editor of the Adelaide Advertiser, who knows me very well, knows my story very well. Um, and the process was great. In once he got the structure together of what chapters we wanted to cover, we just met weekly on a Saturday over coffee and. Um, you know, talked about it and then he'd spend the week editing it up and then I'd look over it and send it back and it actually came together really, really quickly. Um, and like a lot of things, it's therapeutic, you know, when you're writing and you're reading, you have to slow your thoughts down um, and it gives you a chance to really uh, look into those moments. And it's like you said, it's a different book. It's not your typical sports autobiography it is very pointed in that the title is called Now, so it's a very um, perspective look back on moments in my career, people in my career, um, the lessons that I learned, the impacts of those, the reapplications of those in a way that it may help people. And it, well, it sounds like it was quite cathartic. There's, there's a really interesting uh, opening couple of pages where you're actually burning your immediately post-retirement mm. diary. Uh, was that something that was difficult to relive just thinking of those moments? Yeah, yeah, very much so. But I think it was important to be honest in sharing that information. You know, I didn't want it, didn't want to put a book together that left things out. I, I really wanted to be honest and open in, in that regard because life is just, yeah, it's not perfect for anyone. And yeah, to, to open with such a, a, a slap in the face kind of memory um, was really difficult. But at the same time, I think it sets a really interesting tone for people because it's not what you're expecting. <laughs> no, so indeed. And, and and imagining you um, gardening with the ashes of your diary, which are, uh, are they in your garden today? Is that where you live now? Yes, yeah, they are in my garden and I can say that my garden is thriving. <laughs> <laughs> I see, it's because you buried the past. <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. Well, Anna, it's now, it's actually pretty much almost exactly four years and one week since you announced your retirement. Now, you said not yeah. long afterwards that you didn't miss training, but you missed going to training. You missed being amongst it. Have you found a middle ground? 
Uh, yeah, I think I have now. Uh, funnily enough, I use that word quite a bit. Uh, yeah, I, I don't miss the act of training per se, but I do miss having the people that are like-minded uh, to be around. I miss having somewhere to go every day. And I've also had some time to adjust to that notion of recreational activity and the feeling of just feeling fit and healthy rather than high stress, high pressure, high performance kind of preparation and competition. So, um, you know, I, I do an online writing thing each day at home when my daughter sleeps. I might get 20 minutes. I might get 40 minutes. I get on the Zwift world, uh, which is great because I don't even have to get fully dressed into Lycra. I can just, you know, <laughs> romp around in my Knicks and my sports bra. Um, and I, you know, I, I walk my dog and I go to F45 classes and I like that because I don't have to think, I don't have to rack up weight. It's all done. I walk in, walk out 45 minutes. I'm done. So, um, in terms of competition, I don't think I've found anything to kind of fill that yet, but I'm not really looking. Um, but I have noticed that when a board game comes out, it's, it's like a, a switch just turns on. I have to be very, very <laughs> mindful that, you know, that Olympic competitiveness stays under control because, you know, people sit around a board game with a glass of wine and, you know, then they're not too fussed, but I get pretty intense. So. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Uh, okay, no board games with Anamirs and don't sit next no to an F45 class either because that would be hugely intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> don't bring out you know. So tell me, mentally you got things pretty much sorted how about the body it took an absolute battering throughout your career how has it recovered how, how far can it recover away from the stressors of the training loads yeah it's um well i suppose 22 years of um not just international competition but um under load heavy training in the gym particularly and high torque measures that go through is a, a you know just a ref, refund of being able to apply so much torque through the pedals um so I have damage to my lowest three levels of my spine from L3 to LS1. Um, and that was probably the hardest part when I was an athlete. But now that I'm not training, that actually subsided quite significantly. I do still have to maintain it and be very careful. Um, simple things like I don't carry a handbag. Uh, I carry a clutch. I'm very careful with grocery bags. I, you know, I have a granny trolley instead of you know trying to, to lug shopping bags, those sorts of things. <laughs> Um, and my neck, you know, where, where I fell off in 2008 and broke my neck, um, all the training I did as an athlete was actually very good for my neck because it kept things, uh, stable. It kept things strong. Uh, but now I'm not exercising and I'm losing that strength. I actually suffer a lot from migraines as a result of, you know, anything can trigger it. Like I said, from carrying a handbag, which I don't do anymore. Um, to picking up my daughter and breastfeeding my daughter, you know, even looking down on an angle to try and get my daughter to latch can sometimes just trigger something in my neck to cause a migraine. So I've got to be very mindful of those things. Um, yeah, otherwise, you know, it's it's really just um, plugging along and feeding my soul now, which is really, really nice. You know, it's all about that mental, emotional and physical balance, which I probably thought I got right, but probably didn't. Well, your partner, Nick, is the sprint coach, as you mentioned, for the national team. Mm -hmm. You've got an unavoidable close link to the elite side of the sport. How involved have you stayed? Mm. Yeah, see, that's an interesting one uh, because when Nick and I started dating each other, it was my blanket rule that we weren't allowed to talk cycling. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you didn't talk at all? <laughs> 
we didn't. It was well. It was really nice, I think, for him because he could have conversations completely away from the workspace. Um, but then I realised what demand is on a coach. Who I understood it, but by seeing him in the role. Um, I realised that he needed the support as well um, of, a, of a partner. And so we have some ground rules, um, obviously, because I know the athletes that he worked with. I was a part of the team that, sorry, that he currently works with. I was a part of the team that um, they were a part of. So we do have to be respectful of the fact that um, those conversations between him and them don't come my way. But I do support him in his role in understanding, you know, athlete emotions, athlete stresses, um, things like that. So I think we work really well together as a team and um, I think that's come through really well in how our family unit um, functions and it's been really lovely to to have someone who is calm and um, smart, I guess is a good way to put him. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> He'd appreciate I'm quite that. Emotional. Yeah, yeah, he's logical, I'm quite emotional. So we're a good balance for each other. And of course, you've got a unique aspect uh, and a unique insight into the sport. Now, your parents, they did the hard yards, a 300-kilometre drive to the closest cycling facility in Mackay from your childhood home in Middlemount. That is a heck of an effort from two working parents for something that their kids pretty much fancied having a crack at at the time. Now, as a parent yourself, now, how do you look at the sacrifices that families make to give their kids that opportunity? Yeah, it's... um. It's like a lot of things you don't realise until you have something, the dedication or the workload or the effort or the sacrifice or the hard choices, all those things that come into it. It's kind of like, you know, when you buy a new car, you never see that car on the road, but as soon as you buy it, you see them everywhere and you're like, (laughs) where did they come from? Um, Since I've become a parent, I have reflected a lot on um, my upbringing, but also in retiring, I've spent a lot more time with my parents and been able to have conversations just in simple context of how hard it was for them uh, because they never showed it let alone told us and I almost feel like I have the biggest shoes to fill because I don't I, I don't know if I can uh, offer the same to my daughter that my parents did to me I'll certainly try um, but also add my own flair to it so I'm look I'm grateful for my parents you know I want to be a better parent obviously than they were um, as they were better parents than their parents but at the same time I'm, I'm very grateful for everything that they've ever done for me I, I, I wouldn't have I can't repay them I, I won't earn enough money to repay them for everything that they've spent on me and you also know as parents they'd never ask that either it's a it's a huge yeah. part of your your support crew your family Family. Uh, that grew exponentially throughout your career to include uh, coaches, agents, uh, friends and, and those sorts of people. How essential is that for elite, athlete, athletes to have that support behind them? Look, it's really important because uh, even though I'm an, an individual athlete and I'm very much perceived as an individual athlete, I've always felt and delivered I feel in the context of being a part of a team because I know I can't do it on my own I haven't been able to do anything that I have achieved on my own there's been a huge element of myself being input into that but I I've needed the hug when I get home I've needed the ears to listen to so I can vent I've needed um, the financial support when I couldn't get work or I couldn't get sponsors and I couldn't even take a $20 note out of the ATM. I've, I've needed the backing. I've needed the support. And we all do in, in every context. Um, but the elite sporting realm, particularly in Australia, in Olympic sports, 
um, in particular. You know, it's a competitive environment where there's a lot of domestic code sports that are, um, you know, really well marketed. They have great sponsorships and great opportunities, but um, sometimes the Olympic sport uh, can can really struggle. And um, yeah, it's very important to have support, but also mentors as well, you know, because there's very few people um, who have been in those positions as well. So if you can tap into people to learn from them in order to make less mistakes along the way, um, that's always positive. And then I was very grateful for those who helped me. Well, and you've certainly become a mentor yourself. How is that when your mentor, mentor, your mentee turns into competition? I mean, to make a national team, you need to beat everyone from your own country. Steph Morton was just once that kid who was chasing your autograph. What did that feel like when she became your direct competition? Really weird because, and still to this day, like she still looks at me like Anna Mears, you know, and, <laughs> and, and you know, I remember the time she came up and asked for my autograph and I thought, oh, she's young. I'm going to retire by the time she gets through the ranks. I'll, you know, sign the autograph and maybe one day you'll beat me. And lo and behold, I stayed around so long she actually did. <laughs> Damn it. Um, yeah, I know. I know, but it's nice at the same time to be able to be that, that person that they look to and um, can be inspired by to be better in themselves. But at the same time, as a competitor, I was just wishing that I didn't do it because I, just, <laughs> I wanted to win as well. Um, so, yeah, it was a delicate balance. Well, your rivalry started at home, wasn't it? Your first great rival, your sister? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And because I was the baby of the family and my sister, Carrie, being one year older than me, um, I think just where we fell in the in the ladder of the family, I always wanted to beat her at everything, you know, whether it's shotgun <laughs> for the car, top bunk at the hotel, um, all those sorts of things. Whereas she was the bigger sister and she was, I think, a bit more protective, whereas I was, you know, all over the competition side of things. But, yeah, you know, sometimes for me to be the best in the country, I had to be the best in my family. Yeah, well, of course, uh, when Kerry retired, you had to develop other rivalries. The most renowned of that, of course, was uh, Victoria Pendleton. How important was that in your motivation? And are you still in touch with her? Oh, hugely important. Um, yeah, we're in touch, um, you know, intermittently would be a good way to put it, um, especially both of us, I think, are going through those challenges of transition uh, into life away from sport. Um, and, you know, we've, we've had the opportunity to sit down and debrief on our rivalry in our careers um, which was nice because really we only saw one side of the coin to be able to get the the other side of the picture um, was was pretty I think almost therapeutic and needed for both of us um, yeah it's you know I needed her like I needed my sister I, I love being pushed I love being challenged and I I definitely know had it not have been victorious for Victoria Pendleton, I would not have ended up being as good as I was because she made me better. Um, she was the best in the world. You know, for six years in a row, she was undefeated. And she wasn't going to get worse. You know, I couldn't sit there and hope that she was going to get worse for, the, uh, worse for the chance for me to be be the best. If I was going to be the best, I had to beat the best. And, um, you know, I don't ever want to be in a position again where I was on the start line in London like I was feeling those, you know, uh, intense, pressures of that rivalry but I am very grateful that I was one half of what a rivalry that brought a huge spotlight to our sport um you know women's track sprinting was never a hot highlighted sporting event at Olympic Games like it was in London and um I'm very proud of where the level that we took our sport to and I'm thankful to her for that I'm not thankful for the stress that it brought (laughs) (laughs) but at the same time I am 
Likewise, she probably doesn't thank you for uh, ruining her, for her fairy tale finish in yeah. London. <laughs> and it, of course, all Australian fans remember uh, where they were and, and watching that unfold was incredible. And, and as you mentioned, elite sport creates an environment where I guess only the people who are doing it understand your existence because they're sharing that experience. Uh, how much does that kinship, if you like, extend outside the cycling world, Anna, to athletes from other sports? Because you would have met so many through the years. Yeah, Yes, um, I, I think it extends. It's almost like that unspoken kind of company and uh, and that respect as soon as, you know, you don't even have to have the conversation. Just being in the company of someone that you know has been to Olympic Games, who has been through elite level competition and, and stresses and challenges and injury, you just, it's almost like that silent little nod, you know. It's kind of like, yeah, you get it. You really get it. Um, but also, too, um, you can always learn from people outside your own circle. And I've been very, very fortunate to have wonderful women, strong-minded, strong-bodied women, um, you know, lend me support, uh, including the great Marjorie Jackson-Nelson um, mm. and Marg Rolston, who was a, a phenomenal trailblazer in the journalistic side of things, um, Sandy Pisani, Rachel Bourne, Ju- Juliet Haslam, um, you know, just to name a few, um, throw in there Jan Sterling, who was a wonderful coach for the Australian basketball team, Roger Rashid, who's in with the, um, the tennis scene, but also the Port Adelaide Football Club, Steve Waugh, who was a great captain um, of Australian sport. You know, just, I wouldn't, these are people I would normally just see on a TV screen. Do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> but the fact that I can be in their company blows my mind still to this day, but at the same time, that, um, you know, being linked without actually being linked through the same sport is is pretty special. Mm. You mentioned Steve Waugh there. He wrote the foreword for your book. He's clearly a huge admirer of yours. How how clearly do you remember when you met him? Mm. I was floored by that foreword, honestly. <laughs> oh, beautiful. I'm, I'm thinking of getting like four of those books, ripping the foreword out and framing the pages. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I might get him to sign it for me. But I do remember very vividly not meeting him but seeing him. And um, he was kind of a mentor for the Olympic Games for Beijing and London, but he was never a mentor of cycling. So I always saw him walking around the parks. We were paired with um, John Eald. And um, the first time I met him was actually at the Great Wall in China um, once competition had finished. And I, yeah, I V-lined for him for a photo. And the um, first person I showed was my, my dad because he was a big fan. And, uh, and and then in London, every morning, Steve, well, like clockwork, would you know, drop his laundry down. At the same time, I was like clockwork doing my, my pre-breakfast drills. And um, and that was kind of where you know, we, we started to pay maybe a little more attention to each other. But I mainly remember my parents. I got them into the village in London and I took them into the AOC headquarters inside the athletes village and Steve was in the office and I have never seen my father melt to being like a six-year-old kid again like he was just he couldn't find the words it was hilarious and all he could say to Steve was oh mate do you still pick up a bat and I was just like dad come on seriously that's the first thing you want to ask him (laughs) oh that's that's so gorgeous a humble person it's interesting that uh, that mutual respect that that the, these athletes who who achieve the pinnacle that you do have for each other. Uh, of course, many of you jump to the other side to either do uh, coaching or mentoring or the media. And you had a chance at the Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast to join the commentary team. Was that an experience you enjoyed getting that different perspective? Uh, yes. Again, very stressful because. Um, 
it's almost like when you're doing the competition, you're just acting. When you're commentating the competition, you've got to watch it, think about how to articulate what's actually happening. (laughs) Um, So I was super sweaty. Like I found it really stressful, (laughs) Um, but at the same time loved it um, because I felt like I could simplify what people were watching and help them to understand my sport um, and why I loved it. Um, and the feedback was really positive. And, um, yeah, so I've dabbled in that a little bit more. I've gone into the road with the Tour Down Under and sat next to greats like Phil Liggett, who's the voice of cycling, mm. and, you know, really learnt from him. And um, and come Tokyo, I hopefully will we'll be able to uh, fill a seat in that position as well. Of course, along with uh, watching the tactics and the, the, the cycling on the track, crashes are an inevitable mm. occurrence in a cycling career. When you see someone hit the boards, do you flinch does it bring back stark memories of what must have been the most frightening part of your life? Uh, yeah, I, I, I cringe. That's probably a, uh, the best way to describe it. I cringe and um, I just got to take stock a little bit and keep myself in check emotionally because, um, like you said, I've had, had a pretty pretty significant fall myself that, like anything for me, I can relive it very easily and very vividly. And it's not just the visualization of it, it's the feelings, it's the pain, it's the emotion, it's the stress, it's the anxiety, it's everything attached to it comes back. It's, you know, sometimes you can smell a perfume or a flower and it takes you back to, you know, something that happened or somewhere that you were as a teenager. For, for me, those moments where people crash on a track takes me right back to LA when I, I hit the deck for the Beijing Olympic Games. And, um, yeah, you know, my mind does go there, but it more promptly then switches to, I hope they're okay. You know, please mm. get up, please mm. get up, please get up type thing. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, I like the way you say it was a pretty significant crash. I think most people would class it a little bit uh, a little bit more <laughs> than that, and which made it all the more incredible that you went on to stage one of the most incredible comebacks in sport. Now, your path back to the top of the podium is, is really well documented. But before we reflect on the highs, I just want to return to the Commonwealth Games. At one point, you thought that might be your swan song, a fitting transition, if you like, yeah. to retirement. How tough was it emotionally? to be there yeah really hard um even now oh, i just i had the opportunity to have that fairy tale ending at home in the state where i grew up with the family and the people who got it all started for me in the event where it all began that you know the 500 time trial which is no longer in the olympic level competition um you know i've got goosebumps just thinking about how perfect that ending would have been um and as soon as the Gold Coast was announced, I knew if I could get there, that would be it. That would be my thank you to everyone um, and see you later. <laughs> mm. <laughs> thank you and but good night. Two, two years out from Rio, and it just I, I knew that I was even struggling to get to Rio. Um, and by the time I got to Rio, I knew that, you know, pretty much the doctor said to me after I injured my back the last time, he said, you can make it to the Gold Coast, but you probably won't walk well afterwards. And I said, okay, that's a fair that's mm. a fair." comment I'll uh, I'll pull the pin and and it, it's never I, I guess sometimes it's never a perfect time but uh, when you look back on on your career there's there's not much to be uh, unhappy with for those of us perhaps who never get the chance to stand at the top of the podium to have a gold medal placed around our necks to hear the national anthem played in your honor what is that like what goes through your head oh it's um like I said before, it's, it's really surreal in the context that normally you only see that on TV and, <laughs> and all of a sudden you kind of feel like you're, you're being put inside the TV box 
and and you realize you know when you when you're racing for me i was fully uh engaged you know i was in my own little bubble i understood the tactics i had to try and execute i was really intense i was very aggressive it was all about the execution and then you know when you cross the finish line like in london and i realized that i won it was just like this unbelievable sense of relief and this emotional outburst and, and lack of containment of the body whilst being strapped to a bike, still doing 65 k's an hour. <laughs> and then and then you kind of get rushed off the track and ushered through media and through to the, um, you know, the marshalling area. And it's not until you kind of walk up and stand behind the podium that you actually get a chance to stop and catch your breath and look around. Then you realise, oh, shit, there's like a few thousand people in the stadium. There's a few million tuned in at home. And then you're like... Oh, yeah, I just want to just fix my hair a little bit and wipe the sweat <laughs> off my brow. <laughs> and then you realize people have been watching. Like kind of before that, you, you got the gist of it, but you were so in the moment that you just like kind of forgot. So, yeah. um, and, and you know those pictures played. will be replayed and replayed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the anthem plays and that's significant. That's really um, hugely powerful for a number of reasons you know the representation is huge for me I I loved representing my country I loved wearing the green and gold and the epitome of those moments was when the anthem played but at the same time it was also when the whole team huddled around that podium and Mm. particularly in London that gold medal that was the only time the anthem played at the velodrome yeah you know that was the only Australian gold medal so very special yeah I think I teared up watching that uh, medal ceremony but I, I also teared up when I watched you on another occasion four years later being chosen to be the flag bearer uh, mm. and watching you walk around that stadium waving the Australian flag as team captain as such a huge and well-deserved honour. But when Kitty Chiller called you uh, to come in and, and to tell you the news, you actually worried you're in trouble, is that right? Yeah, I was packing it. I'm like, <laughs> why does Chef want to see me? <laughs> Because she, she obviously was doing rounds with all the sports, so I understood that she was there. And, and then, um, you know, Kev DeBotter asked, told me that Kitty wanted to see me privately, and I was like, <laughs> oh, God. Because you know, at that time, you're doing lots of media, and all this, and I'm like, what have I said? What have I done? And that's just my nature, you know. If, if I get called into an office, I think I've done something wrong. <laughs> and so I was sitting there so nervous. I was, I, was thinking, I was just racking my brain, like, what have you said? And uh, and then she was like, oh, you know, I'm here to, obviously I've got a um, position to fill as flag bearer and I wanted you to um, see if you'd be open to accepting the position to, to be the, the captain. And I was just like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. We were both in tears. So it was a very special moment, very, very special. And it was nice because in some ways the flag bearer role, you know, people might think it adds pressure. But for me, it, it just felt like it gave me freedom um, to and, and an acceptance of the culmination of everything that I'd done in my career. Um, so I really enjoyed that moment. Mm. Uh, later on, you were the recipient of the Medal of the Order of Australia. How were you informed of that? You weren't called into another room by someone, were you? No, no, no I wasn't. Um, yeah, that was an interesting one. I actually got that at the age of 20 and um, after my first Olympics in Athens. And my parents came to the pinning ceremony where the Governor-General um, obviously you know, pins it on behalf of Her Majesty the Queen of England. And obviously I didn't do my research into understanding what the OAM was in the <laughs> regards that when I turned around, I've never seen my dad cry in his life, in my life. And my dad was crying and I was like, oh, why, why are you crying? And I'm like, maybe this is bigger than I realised. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you think? <laughs> yeah. 
so I, I, I looked into it after that and I was like, oh, okay, now I understand better. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so the portrait that Phil Barnes painted became a finalist in the Archibald Prize, which was a great achievement and um, a wonderful image that he captured, obviously very intense, like the stare off of start line with my helmet on. Mm. Um, and recently, um, though, episode aired um, uh, where he sits and interviews um, a subject and captures that in, a, in an image. And I thought he might capture that athletic kind of strong stare, but I was really pleased to see that he kind of captured me as a person, which... Um, yes, now hangs as pride of place in my office. Oh, with uh, with a whole lot of medals from memory. Uh, mm. There's uh, <laughs> there's pl- plenty for you to uh, to hang on the walls. Now your well, transition. Well, it prompted me to restyle my whole office. So. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Well, and do you know what? One day Evelyn's going to look at that picture. She's going to ask why someone wanted to paint you. How will you sum that up? Oh, that's a good question. I I've actually been thinking about that recently, about not just that painting, but how am I going to tell her that I was like the best in the world? Like, because to her, <laughs> I'm just going to be mum. Like, oh, mum, get off. Okay, so I'll get to my room in a minute. Do I have to do the dishes? You know, how, how do I? I'm yet to work that one out. Well, you I'm can thinking tell about you, it. Tell you we're relatively successful and you've got the right to tell her to clean her room. I think that should work. <laughs> <laughs> now, your transition from full-time athlete meant that you really had to find the person you were away from the bike. You went from the subject of subject being the subject of a painting to trying out painting actually as the artist. Mm. Uh, that's worked out pretty well for you, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I've uh, always had a love of art and I have always um, had a bit of a visualisation, creative flair, um, which came through in high high school um, and often I would do craft and drawing to keep myself occupied um, when I traveled the world um, away from competition so uh, when I retired I really wanted to kind of work out what I wanted to do and uh, it was Nick who encouraged me to pick up the paintbrushes again and pick up some classes Um, and even though it was really hard to make the first mark on a blank canvas which you know put me in front of the stadium with 6,000 people in a bike riding competition any day, but a blank canvas and a paintbrush I struggled with. Um, and I've made two sales. So the fact that someone wants to buy my art, I'm very proud. That's brilliant. Maybe you'll be painting the Archibald Prize one day. Oh, I'll have a go. We'll see. <laughs> Why not? Uh, now, I don't want to uh, create any spoilers for your book, but for the, for those who read it, it's it's poignantly clear that transition to real life if you like was quite a painful experience for some at the time of your retirement your body was struggling you were dealing with a divorce also you were coping with the illness and then the loss of your close friend and coach Gary West to motor neurone disease Uh, part of Gary's legacy was the cycling cares initiative is that something that remains close to your heart yeah very much so um you know it's The hard part about watching someone die and know that they're going to die and you know are suffering a terminal illness is is seeing those emotional roller coasters that they go through the fear the the anger the frustration the desperation all those sorts of things and you know that was one thing Gary was big on like he just he never gave up hope and he wanted to be remembered um, and it was him that thought of calling it cycling cares because he wanted to be able to um, remember himself through the sport or have people remember himself through the sport that he loved and and platform that through to Neil Danaher and Ian Davis's Fight M&D campaign which obviously is very famous now um, from the wonderful work that they do um, but yeah, it is still going. It is still very important to me. Um, and I think, you know, Gary was very happy that in the first year we were able to raise 
$300,000 and contribute that to trying to find a cure for MND, which currently there isn't one. So um, he know, he knew that the cure wouldn't come in his time, but he said that he hoped it, it, it would come for someone else. So, And that was the sort of man that he was. Ironically, at such a sad time at Gary's funeral, uh, it, it helped you to reconnect with the cycling family. One of those people was Nick, now your partner, and mm. of course Evelyn's mm. dad. Uh, at the time you two had met, you'd really thought pretty fast and you'd already embarked on a different plan. Uh, what was your experience like as a foster parent? Yeah, um, obviously when I retired, I was single and family was always very important to me and I looked into adoption uh, but as a single person in Australia or even as a couple you know a lot of red tape and almost non-existent the ability to be able to adopt children Um, and so I was ushered into by a friend looking into foster care and I went to an information session and I was just struck by I couldn't believe how many kids in this country need need love and uh, a safe home and food in their tummy um, and so I was just so struck by it I went to the training sessions it took me 18 months to become a foster parent and then you know again I've, I've been in some pretty high stress situations in front of millions of people but you drop a distraught child at the age of four who's just been taken from their home in 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 my arms and and kind of you know be told okay now now's when your training kicks in there's a whole nother perspective and reality on life and sport in that regard gave me so many wonderful tools that I could use to help these kids deal with the emotions that they were going through understand um, and have empathy for them in a very difficult time but also you know just try and give them some strength and some positivity Um, and it just empowered me in such an incredible way um, that I was happy to go down that path and then lo and behold I reconnected with Nick um, because obviously I wanted to create some distance between myself and my sport when I retired. I lost Gary, reconnected with my team and therefore Nick uh, at the funeral and from there Nick and I realised, hang on, there's a whole other person to this professional side (laughs) of you that I was aware of for 10 years and um, yeah, I fell in love with that person and uh, we have a beautiful daughter in Evelyn who's now eight months old and she's a cheeky little soul and uh, yeah, she keeps both of us on our toes. Anna, anyone meeting you now, if they didn't know otherwise, would have difficulty imagining what you packed into 37 years. It it means now that your guidance is sought to help others. And of course, everyone's life experiences are different. But if we particularly consider athletes, what do you think is the greatest challenge facing them in current times? Australia tends to be so focused on sporting success. How do we teach our athletes to accept that success isn't always measured in gold medals? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Like I came home from Rio with, as was said to me just a bronze medal um i was taken aback by this perception of what we hold our athletes to of what success is and you know i say to people it wasn't until that bronze medal was won that you know i became the first australian athlete to medal individually at four consecutive games now that's turning up every year for 16 years and being on the podium so if you think that's not success, one, I'll have words with you, but two, I feel sorry for you for the standard you must hold yourself to in your life that you're prepared to hold other people to those standards. Um, you know, and for the athletes of today, I, you know, I really just when I am in a position, I just listen to them because I feel like they are talked to and talked at too much. 
Um, and that's the support I think the athletes need. And, and, and I hope that people who tune into sport appreciate that athletes don't go out to lose. Athletes don't make those hard choices day in, day out and miss family occasions and lose friendship in their dedicated quest to be the best to come home with a, a final or a or silver or a bronze. And that they're still achievements on a human level, that our sports people are still humans, they're still people. And they feel and they um, hold themselves higher than they than other people who are watching them ever will. So I hope that we can appreciate that as sports fans of our athletes. Anna, when you were inducted into the South Australian Sport Hall of Fame in 2018, you thanked all those that supported you throughout your career. And then you thanked your 11-year-old self. Now, I don't want to ruin the context for anyone that hasn't read your book. Go out and buy Now by Anna Mears and you'll understand that story. But it seems fitting, Anna, to finish with the, a quote of the last line in your book. If the 11-year-old me could see me now, I think she'd be really happy with how my life is turning out. We are all so happy for you. Thank you for your time and sharing your story as the trailblazer of this trailblazer show my pleasure thank you for having me on the number one show 